Fualsha, 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 Acharja Gale, and welcome to episode 108 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I am your host, Anne Carolan, but this episode isn't coming out on the usual Friday. It's coming out on Tuesday, the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day 2022. Last year, we had Deirdre and Bernadette Michalski on as our guests for International Women's Day, and this year, I am very happy that Kiva Butterly was able to join us for this special edition of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm sure some of you are going to be already familiar with Kiva's work as a human rights campaigner. She's also a filmmaker and a therapist and has spent over 20 years working in humanitarian and social justice contexts in Haiti, Guatemala, Mexico, Palestine, Iraq, Lebanon and also with refugee communities in Europe. The first day that I met Kiva was last year in 2021 during the event that we held at Ackley in Cork for the visiting delegation of Zapatistas. Kiva was helping with the logistics and the coordination of that tour and was also doing a bit of translating for the Zapatistas during their time in Ireland. As you'll hear Kiva talking, she spent time with the Zapatistas in the Chapas and she's also a very good friend and comrade of Virginia O'Gara, who was our guest on the Rebel Matters podcast back in episode 84. Seems like absolutely ages ago. But that episode with Virginia is well worth checking out as well. I'm recording this introduction on the 17th of February, but by the time you guys hear it, it is going to be International Women's Day and all going well. I am going to be in Palestine, working on Akli Palestine with the three other people of the Irish crew that are flying out, Shiva Brock, Padarugil and Sally McMonagall. We will hopefully all go on well, be out there at the time that you're listening to this, if you're listening to it in or around International Women's Day. So if you want to find out how we're getting on, you can head over to the Ackley Palestine Instagram page, Ackley underscore Palestine, and you can see where we are, what we're getting up to, get a bit more background on the Ackley Palestine project and be able to keep up to date with the latest news from the project going forward. We've got quite an ambitious fundraising campaign on the go for 2022 as well. And if you want to find out more about that, you can click on the GoFundMe link, which is in the Ackley Palestine Instagram pages bio, or you can stick into your search engine, Ackley Palestine GoFundMe, and you'll find us there as well. While we're over there, I'm hoping to do a few podcast interviews as well. And the podcast, of course, is completely funded and supported and kept on the road by our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash rebel matters so if you want to become a supporter and a patron of the show then you can head over there and see the various tiers of support you can also support the podcast by listening to it sharing it on your social media accounts and dropping me the odd message here and there to let me know that you're out there listening or commenting on some of the posts that we stick up about the episodes. The main social media account that we use and the main social media platform that we're using at the minute is Instagram. And you can find the Rebel Matters Instagram page at rebel underscore matters. Anyway, back to the episodes at hand. I suppose that International Women's Day represents different things for different people across a wide 
variety and a wide range of struggles. And it seems that it's been a particularly challenging year when it comes to women's struggle in Ireland, especially considering the ongoing and very important debate and conversation around how we can change gender-based violence and in particular gender-based violence uh, perpetuated by men against women in Ireland and that debate really has kind of taken centre stage after the brutal murder of Ashling Murphy in January of this year. For me International Women's Day is a time to reflect on the on women's struggle and uh, reflect on my own responsibility to support the women in my life and um, and women in general in their struggles and it's also a very good opportunity to reflect on the brilliant women that I have in my circle of friends and in my family circle as well. I'm very grateful to Kiva for coming on to the show and as you'll hear Kiva talks about how she ended up taking the kind of path in life that she did, shares some of her experiences with us and one of the main themes of this conversation especially as the chat was going on was that of self-care compassion to others but also compassion to ourselves which i think is as good a starting point as any especially for anyone who is engaged in any form of activism or ongoing struggle or for anyone who is engaged in working with communities that often find themselves discriminated against or marginalized anyway as I was saying I met Kiva for the first time in Ackley during that event that we were hosting for the Zapatistas and we talked a little bit about that in the episode but it was really really nice to be able to spend a bit of an extended period of time chatting with Kiva and uh, getting to know each other a little bit better and I think from the 107 episodes of the podcast that we've had so far that the ones that often get a really great response are the ones where there's just two of us kind of having a chat and it was as if we were going to have that chat anyway and just so happened to record it and this was definitely one of those episodes. So I really hope you enjoy this International Women's Day special of the Rebel Matters podcast with Kiva Butterly. So what, what have you been up to recently? Um, over the past little while since I saw you mainly here um oh no actually i was in i was in lesbos for a chunk of time uh and in istanbul and then back here um i'm sort of working on this project around trauma informed um psychosocial social supports for uh, search and rescue crews and personnel responding to people making journeys of refuge across the central mediterranean and Aegean. so some of it has been around that uh, and we're traveling to Palermo in Sicily in a few weeks as part of that 
for these sort of trainings and then back to Lesbos. I think you were just heading off to Turkey the next day after the yeah, Zapatista exactly. The Zapatista and... tour. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I think that was really um, a revisiting for a lot of us uh, around a really formative sort of political experience um, in Chiapas, I think. And, you know, and those who supported it from outside as well. But it was it was amazing to be, I think, in the presence of just a really grounded, you know, humble, but really serious, you know, all alternative. And and obviously all of the, yeah, just that that lovely energy that the Compass brought with them. And the fact that it was so young woman led, which was really brilliant to see. How did you end up going down this path of doing the work that you're that you're like doing now and that you've done in the past? I'd say probably um, a variety of different influences. I, I sort of have migration in my own lived experience, you know, albeit a different kind of migration to folks that I work to accompany now in the sense that we had the privilege of mobility and passports and citizenships. Um, but my parents immigrated to Canada when I was a few months old. And so I spent my childhood in Canada, but then they moved to Mauritius and then to Zimbabwe. Um, so I sort of spent my teenage years in a post-colonial context in Zimbabwe, which was really, I'd say formative again, you know, in, in terms of an emergent political consciousness. Um, when I was younger as well, my my parents were involved in sort of a liberation theology um, strain or, you know, sort of movement within the church, actually. And as part of that, there was um, a, a real focus on sort of Latin American solidarity at the time in vis-a-vis -vis Nicaragua and lots of other contexts. Um, and they also used to host um, uh, refugee families from uh, Cambodia. Um, so I, I'd say it was a combination of that. Uh, I also had the good fortune of going to generally, uh, with the exception maybe of a time in Zimbabwe, but really progressive, um, interesting schools uh, in which there was a lot of emphasis on social justice and human rights. Um, and then this is a long winded re reply, but then post Zimbabwe, when I was um, when I finished my A-levels, I had an uncle and aunt in New York and I moved to them to work for a chunk of time. And then the plan was sort of to, to travel um, and to go potentially to Latin and South America and sort of do the whole backpacking route. But then when I was there, um, I got connected with various different sort of social movements, amongst them uh, a house of hospitality for um, houseless or homeless uh, men and women. A lot of them, in terms of this full loop or this full arc, folks who um, were experiencing a lot of mental health struggles um, and a lot of ex-vets who um, had just fallen through cracks of systems and had pretty profound trauma. And yeah, and then I ended up through through that community, sort of through that witness, um, ending up in Guatemala and then as, as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old maybe, but um, uh, working with communities of folks who were returned after um, the, the genocide of indigenous communities there. And then ran into somebody who invited me to Chiapas and then ended up in Chiapas. And then from Chiapas, after a few years, sort of gravitated towards post 9-11, Iraq and then Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, etc. Anyways, so that's a really long-winded answer. But my life has sort of been like, um, uh, in a way, uh, I sort of think of it as a, as a quilt of, of lots of different pieces. 
and the sort of things that weave it together, even though they've been quite disparate, right? So different geographies, you know, different linguistic, you know, frames, different contexts of struggle and dissent and community, you know, and resistance and joy and and suffering has has been, you know, just a really strong vein of community, a strong, you know, sort of thread of community throughout that. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I've just been really lucky that I've always sort of been in the company, I think, of really good, um, if I'm going to call them mentors or sort of folks, you know, who are a few steps ahead, a few in, you know, in that journey of, of trying to walk in accompaniment of folks who say some no's in terms of suffering and oppression and lots of yeses in terms of what they're trying to build as alternatives. How long did you spend in the chapels? A couple of years. Um, and when I left, I, I remember maybe two and a half years, but when I left, I remember, you know, the, the plan was just to come back to Ireland because my my parents and uh, brothers and sister had moved back to Ireland from Zimbabwe and I was coming back to spend time with them, um, but also to to work and to save money to go back. And uh, and then 9-11 happened. I, I was actually working in Cork at the time in the English market in the olive stall. Um, and I remember the day that it happened. I, re I remember people just rushing in, you know, to the market and I, I had this this really visceral feeling of of this sort of changes everything on I think on a geopolitical level but also on a personal level. Uh, so I ended up reconnecting after that with a group of folks that I knew from New York called Voices in the Wilderness, who were sort of an anti-war group um, that also at the time used to bring medical delegations to Iraq as a way of challenging the the sanctions, the the collectively punishing sanctions that existed at the time. Um, so I connected with them um, and I ended up going to Iraq then. And then, and then that sort of took my life on a different tangent in terms of um, the Middle East uh, and a big chunk of time then spent there. The events of 9-11 sort of feels like our generation's version of, like I remember listening to my dad, even my granny saying everyone remembers where they were whenever JFK was shot dead. Mm. And like I remember kind of exactly what I was just watching that he had the TV on in the house just by chance when I seen the news reports coming through and I was making my way up to RGA club for a training session. I just mm. remember walking up thinking like, was that a real or like, was it one of those mm. like a uh, dystopian yeah. films or something like that where they've got like the, all the news channels have been taken over to like launch out this one really important thing that's ever happening in the world. You know, the way you've been like involved in like loads different, like, like as you were saying, their contact, uh, Struggle, struggles and different that are in kind of different contexts and different parts of the world how have you managed to do that and like there's so many things going on and it's, like you've been in so many different situations uh that have been like really violent and things and like a very oppressive how have you managed to to do that for so long it's a good question and it's actually um in a way it's the focus of my work at the moment you know vis-a-vis -vis trying to resource others who um, are in, in similar but different sort of intensities, you know, vis-a-vis -vis witness of, of violence, of state violence, of um, militia violence, of, of you know, the, the violence of borders. Um, and, and I think the way personally, you know, that, that I kept going had its unhealthy dynamics. You know, when, when I think in retrospect um, to the sort of the pace at which I lived my life, predominantly pre having my my little boy tyke um but even after like in the initial few years of his life albeit in less in less extremely dangerous contexts but i think it was it was just 
you know, it was just keeping on moving. Um, and in retrospect, I don't think I processed enough, um, you know, and in retrospect, I don't think I, I held space, you know, definitely, I think for the grief and the pain and the loss and the suffering of the communities that I lived amongst. But I, I didn't hold enough space for my own um, because I negated it. You know, I, I minimized it because, you know, because it, it, they, they weren't my family. They were my, my, you know, my, my spiritual, my soul family, but they weren't whatever, whatever I grieved. I knew it was minimal in comparison to the, the communities that I was working amongst. So I, I compartmentalized it, I think, and I just kept on going and from sort of one war context to another. And it only really, I think, hit me actually when I got pregnant in the sense of just the, the visceral nature of, of, of that trauma. So in answer to, to your question, I think I had in retrospect probably unhealthy coping mechanisms in the sense of just being really like driven and focused, you know, on sort of the quote unquote work, right? On that witness, on that accompaniment, on that response. But it was also driven, you know, by by love and by commitment and, you know, by gratitude, you know, in a way to to what I was taught, to what I learned, you know, walking alongside people women, men, and children. And in in the, the words of our, our compañeros, you know, in, in Chiapas, you know, los otros, but like that were just really um, instructive in terms of how to live with conscience, how to live with commitment and consistency and congruence in a world of such profound inequality. But having said all of that, I, I, I in a way, I'm trying to use, you know, that experience of, you know, I, I think back to times, you know, in Gaza during Castled, where, you know, we were working on ambulances, a bunch of us as sort of international accompaniers and witnessing massacre, you know, continually, daily responding to really, really horrific loss, you know, oftentimes digging the, the broken bodies of children out of rubble and, um, and, and in a way, you know, I, I oftentimes think, you know, when it comes to tra traumatic witness, what has been seen can never really be unseen. It's always with you in mind, in spirit, in body, you know, in one's nervous system as well. But what I'm trying really hard in this sort of this, this iteration of my life, which also involves activism and organizing, but part of that, a big part of that now is looking at sort of trauma and resilience informed psychosocial resourcing of people engaged in this work. And I think that part of that, you know, has to have a big, you know, sort of section of, of healing. And I feel like I've done big parts of my own, you know, within it just almost organically, you know, through this work, through being able to sort of sit with that vulnerability of an 18 year old self, a 21 year old self, you know, self sort of a 23 year old self or all of those different ages along the way where, you know, I was in the midst of this huge like geopolitical just, you know, when it came to the interests and the forces and, you know, the state sponsored violences and the, the military industrial complexes and, you know, all of these big meta narratives that coalesce to create the suffering. And then on the ground, in, in the minute almost of what that entails in terms of people surviving and recovering and processing. Um, but I suppose in a way, maybe similar to the energy that I get from yourself that I glimpsed when we were in Cork, I've had this vein that I'm deeply grateful for, but of joy. And and it's almost something, you know, I, I remember the, the lowest point sort of in 
my own lived experience vis-a-vis trauma where I was navigating in retrospect what you know was pretty acute sort of PTSD symptomology in terms of you know flashbacks and just really visceral remembering um, that I remember you know and it lasted a few months and when I was in it I remember just thinking that my biggest source of grief within it was also was you know where was my joy you know where where was just that that profound gratitude of sort of waking up in you know feeling you know hearing birdsong or walking and feeling the wind of my face or like all of those sensory reminders you know of gratitude for being alive and you know being alive in a time in which you know as well as all of the suffering there's so much beautiful resistance to that, you know, in on a localized community le- level, on a global level, on a social movement level, on a transnational level. There are so many people, you know, who are creating community and creating alternatives. Um, so when I got through that period, you know, and I was fortunate in the sense, I actually went back to train as a psychotherapist and my mother is a psychotherapist. And, you know, so I was really lucky that I was within a family context where I had access, you know, to um, a psychoeducational literacy. So I had words to be able to put to my experiences. So they weren't as frightening as they could have been, you know, I think when people experience, you know, quite profound trauma. And once I had a language, you know, I began to sort of research it and find, I think, the modalities that worked for me that had also a political framing that didn't pathologize or individuate the process, but put the context, you know, of injustice or or human rights around it. And once I had that, I felt like I could actually process it all and never forget it, but sort of recognize that it's a memory that keeps me awake to gratitude. It keeps me awake to love and also an appreciation of the really finite nature of life. As we all know, it's ephemeral and how to sort of live each day in a way, not in a catastrophized way, but in a way of just recognizing it's, it's not to take it for granted ever and not to take the lives of those, you know, whom I love for, for granted either. But yeah. You find a big contrast between how you're processing things that you're bearing witness to when, but at the time, whenever you're there, if you are abroad in a refugee camp or in somewhere that's at, uh, there's where there's a war happening compared to the times when you're back at home? Sometimes. Um, But I've actually found once I sort of reorientated my own processing, you know, structure, I find that even when I'm in intense contexts now, I might be moving quicker, right? You know, because, you know, it's response, you've got to respond, you've got to mobilize, you know, even, you know, logistical organizing in, in camps or contexts where people are displaced and need to access basic, you know, humanitarian practical supports quickly. Um, even within that, I find once I actually slowed down internally, it doesn't mean that I don't sometimes, you know, speed up and, you know, sort of get lost in that, that swirl, right. Of activity, that swirl of activation, but it does mean that I'm a lot more aware of like my own physiological, you know, physiological responses to that, that stress or to that activation or sometimes to that traumatic resonance. Um, so I found, and this is actually one of the things that we're working on, you know, was sort of like both the activists, humanitarian responders, first responders, search and rescue personnel that we're working with. There are ways, I think, of both being enervated and, and activated vis-a-vis a response, but internally sort of in a place of, if not rest, um, but at least awareness of when sort of that will, that window of tolerance or that window of capacity is sort of flooded, you know, in which it's a little bit too much. 
Um, and I think in healthy, you know, sort of co-regulation, if we're going to call it mechanisms within organizations, activist groups, first responders, et cetera, that peer-to-peer -peer support piece of somebody having, you know, people having each other's backs and somebody even just being able to put like a hand on the shoulder, you know, when you're observing a colleague or a comrade or a coworker is just a little bit just breadth thin, stretch thin, stressed, and just to like get them even for a minute, you know, just to breathe, even for a minute, you know, just to sort of try and reground themselves. Because even if that minute seems superfluous when somebody is, you know, in a rush, and I'm not talking about ambulance response here, just because that's, you know, a category in itself. But I think in any other work, the world will not crumble if we take that minute just to pause, just to reground, just to breathe. Um, and in a way, I often think of it these days and it's, it's not just you know a self-resourcing it's a co-resourcing a co-regulation of the communities that we work with because so much of our communication is nonverbal, right so if I'm sitting in the presence of somebody who's stressed I feel it you know I feel that in my nervous system you feel that in your nervous system if I came onto this call you know all you'd, you'd be feeling it you know and if my prosody of my voice if my body language was telling you you know I'm carrying you know and an unsustainable level of stress, you'd feel it and you'd respond. And I think oftentimes the refugee communities, I, I've noticed in the past seven years, you know, in a European context that I've worked amongst, they have such an attuned awareness of the stress of volunteers, you know, and, and they make, you know, excuses for it. And, you know, and I've oftentimes overheard conversations, you know, in Arabic where people are like, Haram, you know, like they're, you know, all oh, the poor things, you know, they're sort of stressed, aren't they? You know, and like, because they get it, you know, and. And yet that shouldn't be theirs to carry, you know, and on top of everything else that they're carrying, you know, having survived sea crossings and, you know, and war and displacement and the humiliation of enforced dependency and everything else that that they're navigating. Um, so I really firmly believe, you know, in, in the words of Audre Lorde, amongst many others, that self-care, you know, collective communities of care are revolutionary acts. Um, and that I think in the same way, you know, that I witnessed in the space that you've built, you know, it's a space of nurture, it's a space of community, you know, of food, of art, of, you know, it's a holistic understanding of health. You know, what does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be healthy? And as you said earlier, sort of a oftentimes dystopic capitalist, you know, and the violence of that vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the work sort of structures, oftentimes of extraction and exploitation and, and burnout and exhaustion that people live within, what does it mean to respond holistically, you know, to our minds, our spirits, our souls, our bodies? Um, and how do we build meaning within that, right? How do we build spaces in which, you know, the values that we hold um, have resonance, you know, with others and in which we try and, you know, construct alternatives to, to systems that we know are failing people and brutalizing people oftentimes and diminishing us all, right? You know, we have so much capacity to be so much more as, as people, as communities, as, as walking in solidarity, authentic solidarity with each other. Of the three times that I've been over to Palestine, like I've got three drastically different experiences in terms of how I was kind of like able to process the information. Like the first time, I think I came back on a Saturday and I was due to go back to work on a Monday. I was just thinking, I'll be off on Sunday, happy days, back to work on Monday. And then that just really didn't work out because it was only after I came back where I had a bit of downtime where we, where we weren't just going around and meeting people on a on a quite a hectic schedule. And so that was difficult. Um, 
that I suppose it was a good lesson in uh, that kind of self-credit you're talking about. Then the second time I was thinking to myself, I better do something after this trip to try and like give myself a bit of time. So I ended up going to a festival and mm. that was a disaster as well, because at one minute I was in Palestine and then the next like couple of hours later I was in this big festival. It was just like too big of a contrast. But the third time we were over there was the first time that that um we went over as a as a group that we had organized amongst ourselves with the other the first two the other two times I was going along with sort of joining other people over there. And we we just got into the habit of every every night sitting around the table together of, of the six of us that were there and just kind of talking about the events of the day and everyone had an opportunity to ask each other each other questions or relay things that might have happened or just make observations on the day, which was sort of like a little pressure release valve every night so that we weren't just accumulating things until the point that we were, that we were back at home again. And that definitely was uh, something really good that, that we all did. I think that everyone who was on that trip got something out of it. And probably what you're talking about, Jeremy, I'm sure it applies to people who are, are involved in any form of activism at home as well in, in terms of having that coping mechanism and the way that I kind of visualize it in my head is that you can't just be at the front line all of the time because mm -hmm. there needs to be a recovery period or, or some kind of form like you were saying of, the, of, of kind of self-care that's allowing you to maintain yourself through whatever it is that you're working towards. Definitely and even hearing you know I'm picturing you all around that table you know and I, I think how how beautiful you know, that you took the time and the space to do that. Because I think in a way, my experience particularly, I think that's shifted now, but particularly within maybe the age that I started engaging in that this, that specific context was I found a lot of organizing and activist structures were very unfeminist in, in ethos and organizing principles. And, and that shifted over time. I find like the ways I look to, I think, particularly intersectional feminism and also LGBTQI organizing, you know, groups and organizers in the sense of, I think there has been this intuitive bodily wisdom, you know, for decades intergenerationally about the need to do what you did, right? The need to process that collectively, the need to create space away from, I think, what sometimes in that context becomes a bit macho, right? So it's, it's like, you know, the the almost, you know, and I, I definitely witnessed that as a younger activist, particularly around Palestine, because it was such, you know, at that time, you know, at the beginning of the second intifada, you know, it was such a like a hyper mediatized context. It was the beginning of international, you know, sort of accompaniment, um, not the beginning, but maybe a, a widening, widening of that, you know, where a lot of activists would go over. And in a way, I just felt like, you know, that introspective lens vis-a-vis -vis power, privilege, you know, racialized privilege, you know, the fact that we were using, you know, our our, our skin color privilege, our, you know, our, our racial privilege to try and protect, you know, folks, even that language, you know, to protect um, was so profoundly problematic. And, and we didn't, you know, it wasn't deconstructed at the time. And again, I've witnessed that also in Lebanon and Iraq and different contexts of that sort of war journalism, 
you know, machismo as well of just going and going and going and going until people really burn out or they're coping with like profoundly unhealthy, self-injurious, you know, sort of coping mechanisms. And I think also in this context of, of the North, you know, I, I think of the amount of almost of disintegration, you know, internal disintegration that happened for particularly a lot of men post, you know, during obviously ongoing, but also, you know, when in a way, the meaning of, you know, when when you were committed to a struggle or a cause and there was identity and there was meaning and there was community, and then suddenly it's not there anymore. You know, where do people put that? And oftentimes, I think that becomes really internalized. And I've seen that in Palestine and Lebanon. I've seen it post, not that it's ever post, you know, the trauma there, um, but definitely post one, you know, intensely, yeah, just more intense sort of period of violence. And then, you know, in a way, when things are going on and we're responding, there's an enervation in that because there's meaning. Everything makes sense. I think the grayness almost comes in, you know, in terms of trying to figure it out and the contradictions and the dissonances in the post. Anyways, that's a really long-winded way of saying um, that I think it's beautiful that you took that time. I can imagine the dissonance that you face going to a music festival. I still can't go there. Um, I, I it, it took me years before I could do things that you know, we're a different form of joyous without just feeling, yeah, this like profound dissonance. Um, but on my 40th birthday, I decided after like years of avoiding just, I think, particularly festivals, I was like, uh-uh, um, F this, I'm going. <laughs> so I, I I got a childminder for my little boy and I got a ticket to see Florence and the Machine. Um, and I went and I danced my heart out alone, you know, and then cycled home, you know, sort of giddy with it all at 2 a.m. And I was like, okay, this this is a new epic for me. So I, I think, yeah, maybe maybe festivals straight after Palestine are a big jump, but I, I think it's really important that we preserve spaces of, of celebration. And definitely in movements in Latin America, that was something that was so seamlessly integrated into their resistance, you know, as, as I observed and witnessed and have read about and, and experienced, um, but that there was always this big emphasis on, on dance, on music, on, you know, creating beautiful food, community, that children were a seamless part of that as well. And that, and I'll just go off on one tangent, really struck me when I had a child you know, amidst, you know, sort of social movement organizing here in Ireland, that there isn't enough attention paid to that, that the necessity, the beauty, you know, of creating spaces that are child, you know, not just friendly, but child, you know, celebrating. Um, because I think oftentimes when you don't, you know, it replicates the exclusion oftentimes of women, you know, of, of single parents primarily, but but oftentimes of women, men too sometimes, but but oftentimes women. Um, and I read a really beautiful quote around that, uh, which was, you know, almost how do we encourage within our movements that reorientation away from perceiving children's, you know, celebration and noise as something pejorative versus something gorgeous, you know, to hear them laughing, you know, during a, an ultra serious, you know, lefty organizing meeting, like, oh, um, but to, to, to celebrate, you know, that, that quote unquote noise. And the quote was children's quote unquote noise is the sound of our movements growing. And I, I believe that so deeply. And, and I've witnessed that, you know, so many times in different contexts, you know, where, organizers are are just it's 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 not apart from their lives it's integrated into their lives their lives are integrated into their organizing do you find it difficult to talk about like your own traumatizing experiences or the traumatic experiences of other people that you've encountered throughout the years in the different places that you've been in 
yes and no. I'm really conscious. So I'll, I'll start with other people because that, that's my, my, my safer zone within this. Um, vis-a-vis other folks, I, I find representation is, is a really, it's a question that I, th- I sit with really deeply, right? So what is sort of an ethos or an ethic of, of ethical representation of folks in their complexity, you know, in their, their subjective reality? So when I write or sometimes when I do film work, I'm really conscious around how do people want to be represented? Will they be comfortable with this as an archive, you know, 20, 10 years down the road? Should we be showing this vulnerability? Do they want to be framed within their courage and their resilience? Or is that sort of fetishized too, that you always have to be courage and resilient as a refugee, right? You know, that that whole sort of trope and really reductive framing. That's exhausting for people in terms of the emotional labor, not of only having to survive, but also to be a quote unquote good migrant, right? To achieve, to, you know, be visible, to, you know, be be a community leader, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of how I represent people's stories, I'm conscious of um, my own accountability to whom I am I accountable to? What is the collective process within that editorial process? So as much as possible in film work, I try and make sure, you know, that it's a process of ongoing consent. So it's not just people signing a waiver form that we can use the interview, but that they have a say, right? And maybe three months down the road when we're editing something, maybe they'll think, okay, that's not me anymore. You know, that that's not how I want to express myself anymore. You know, and 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 that leads us, you know, we take that out or we rework it or so in terms of other folks' trauma, I'm conscious of responsibility within it. I'm conscious of not falling into sort of reductive binaries in terms of vulnerability or overemphasized resilience. Um, and I'm conscious of trying to represent nuance. In terms of my own, it's it's I think having trained as a psychotherapist for the last few years, that has provided in a way me with a really good toolkit to be able to not self-pathologize, but to be able to understand, you know, some of the processes that I went through, that I go through. And, and I think because I've lived it, you know, because I've, I've lived and survived and I think had a lot of what I deem sort of post-traumatic growth, you know, on almost as an ontology, like on a spiritual, on a psychological, on a, you know, numerous set of levels, which isn't to say, you know, that the the journey isn't over, but having gone through that process, I feel I can speak with conviction with other folks that I'm working with, that I'm trying to like popularize what self and collective care means, you know, popularize, you know, or sort of mainstream in a way within our movements, the need for trauma, resilience, informed responses but I can say it with authenticity. Like I've been there. I, I get it. I do get it. You know, or I get a version of it. Maybe I haven't walked your path. Maybe it's a different one, but I do get it. The only thing that I feel hesitation or sort of reticence around is in a way having been shot because I feel like that it's, it's a very, in my experience, specific experience that really stays with you, you know, in terms of that bodily register and I've read it in a lot of other accounts because there's there's very little research. Actually, I find as a cohort specifically on people who have had an experience of like bullet injuries, which is different because I've been injured in other ways, like with shrapnel, you know, sort of percussion grenade, you know, different things like that. But I, I find the bodily experience of a bullet for some reason has its own resonance, has its own legacies almost in terms of like how you hold it in your body. So I find, you know, when I read research, it's typically, you know, with men, it's typically in a context, you know, in the United States of folks who have either 
been involved, you know, in which gangs have been their community or just random, you know, sort of like, you know, passerby, you know, sort of violence, right, in terms of, 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 gun, of gun wounds um, or bullet wounds. So I, in some ways, that's a place that because I felt for so long, because Ireland is such a small country, I was sort of defined by, you know, that that being shot became for a few years after I got back as sort of an identity that I, I wasn't comfortable with because I sort of felt like it was a moment in in a long, hopefully life that that in a way was eclipsed by much bigger experiences. You know, I think Gaza, Kassled, the war in Iraq, like all of these other much more visceral and and bigger violences that that I've been in sort of the midst of. But I also feel discomfort about talking about it, you know, even though I am now, which is rare, because I feel like it's I haven't quite figured it out as an experience myself yet. Like what what does it mean? And it actually the reason probably I'm talking about it is because it's actually it really came up for me a couple of days ago because my little boy Ty was invited to a birthday party in which they're doing I think this thing called like Quasar. And and I have really struggled like as a parent, you know, in terms of trying to get that balance between not allowing my trauma to sort of dominate his life but also wanting him to understand as he gets bigger, you know, what weapons do, you know, to people and obviously not expose him to the graphic nature of that, but, but just, you know, not to sort of casualize violence, right. Which happens, I think kids and whatever, like my, I remember my parents really had like a zero gun sort of policy in our house, toy gun policy in our house when we were younger. And then like my brothers specifically, I'm sure all of us, but specifically my brothers started to like make guns out of toast or like you know, <laughs> sticks or whatever they could find. So I think what I, I need to like, and this is, uh, I think a process with him that I'm really trying to explore, like healthy constructs of masculinity, right? You know, that are non-patriarchal, but also, you know, don't, you know, make him carry the shame about a patriarchy that, that you know, yes, he he exists within a boy's or man's body, you know, whatever, you know, for now, like in, in terms of how he identifies gender-wise, but I don't want him as a boy, as a man in this world, you know, to also like carry a toxic level of, of, you know, shame or, you know, about a wider context of patriarchy. So how can I get that sort of that positive, you know, modeling around? And when I came to your gym, I was like, okay, this is it. We're coming down to course. But anyway, so, so, so there's all of this, right. And, and he is, he's an amazing boy, you know, like he's amazing boy child. He's an amazing child. Um, and he doesn't gravitate towards guns, but anyways, so when, when this description, so I was in a car and it was being described by another parent and my entire body, you know, and it was being described like in a fun way, you know, oh, and you know, this sort of electric shock and it doesn't really shock them. And my body, literally, my stomach was clenched. My heart was like, you know, and, um, and, you know, and I was having to sort of almost smile through slightly gritted teeth of like, oh yeah, like, you know, this is so not what I want, you know, my, my kid to be going into. And, you know, because somebody was describing like labyrinths and where I was back to, in my head, you know, was an experience that has nothing to do with Tyke. It has nothing to do with like, you know, the innocence of these kids who are just going to have fun, you know, and I'm projecting all of this stuff in my mind. So I'm really conscious, like, and we're going on Saturday and it will be fine. And I'm going to go for a walk by the sea while they do their thing. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to just smile and ask him how it is. And maybe he'll pick up on my discomfort, but yeah, I'm not sure how well I can mask it, but it, it's, but I'll, I'll learn, you know, in a way to like not, 
have him carry too much heavy stuff because I'm conscious, you know, because Ty comes with me, you know, to refugee camps and he comes to Lesbos and he's been to Calais and, you know, I brought him to meet communities in Lebanon. He already has probably a lot more exposure than your average 10 year old born in this part of the world to injustice and to suffering and probably to trauma. So I, I think or, or you know, a, a sense of people's trauma. So and yet we try and do that in a way through other children. Right. So, you know, he, he hangs out with kids, you know, in the camp and plays football and makes art and, you know, listens to music. And, you know, um, it's it's not all around narratives of suffering. It's also narratives of, of fun and childhood. Um, so I have trained as a psychotherapist. I've gone through all these like trauma, trauma modalities. I work with those with others. I work with survivors of torture, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that if a conversation about Quasar can bring me back into that place in my body of like, you know, hyperactivation in a way that it will always be there. And in a way that is both like a burden, but also a resource in itself. Because I think when it's always there, it's never abstract, you know, so when I work with survivors of torture or, you know, folks who have experienced, you know, refuge seeking journeys, et cetera, I, I can sense sometimes in the same way, I think that a lot of, you know, cancer survivors describe sensing that register um, or survivors of war describe sensing that register. Um, I, I, like many others, this is not an exceptional thing. It's like many others in a room typically can sense, you know, um, not the specificities, but a, a almost a register of Trump, you know, traumatic activation or of grief or of loss. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of folks who have survived trauma can attest to and can speak to. Um, so I, I think it's, it's an ongoing journey. Um, I think you know, I'll never be able to live sort of comfortably in cities around Halloween or, you know, when there's fireworks or, you know, the things that sort of trigger ambulance sirens still have that effect. But at least I know what's going on in my body, you know, and, and I have a, a, a logical container to be able to say, okay, that is my autonomic nervous system. And it's okay, you know, like care for it or that, you know, that is, that's cortisol, that's adrenaline, that is memory, that is, that is my bodily health response to something that is in, in some ways beyond the, the lived experience of some people, and yet the very regular lived experience of many other people, including, you know, in the north of this country. So I think it's, yeah, just important to, you know, not in a Pollyanna-esque way, you know, to try and like turn everything into a positive, but in my own lived experience, I, I'm grateful, you know, for that register in this iteration of my work right now, um, because without it, I, I don't know how authentically I could speak to or from. Like, I felt that a part of the, as like when we're, when we're going to Palestine, like a part of that project is to be able to come back and share stories share people's stories in a way that's like you say kind of respectful and sensitive to the things mm. and and sort of like uh assuming that kind of ethical responsibility when you're t- telling the story and we're we're in the process of making a film about the project that that we're involved in at the minute so that's kind Beautiful. of something that we're that we're really like talking about quite a lot about how, how we're going to do that and w- one of the things that i've enjoyed doing that has definitely helped me coming back from Palestine has been going back to Belfast 
and just being able to go and walk around the streets with one of my friends and just talk things through a little bit. And I think it is because that there is while while things aren't like exactly the same in any two places that there are certain elements of being out there that people particularly like in the area that that we're from in West Belfast can relate to. Like that's like for sure the first time I went there, there was a feeling of familiarity about a lot of the things like about being in the presence of soldiers and checkpoints and armored cars and things like that. And even being in the presence of the kids who were at the camp was kind of like a throwback in in a way, well, it's not exactly the same, but uh, like I was, just as you mentioned, the the psychotherapy there, like it was um, just after our our mom passed away in 2020, I was doing a, a bit of talking to a a psychotherapist and one of the exercises that she kind of got me to do was to think back to how I would have felt as a kid and to be as an adult to talk to my child self Mm. and I was just out for a walk the other day just thinking about that in the context of Palestine and having grown up with the military presence or whatever of the British Mm. army in Belfast and having the kind of chat with myself as a child and like the main thing that 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 um kind of came up for me when I was thinking about that is that like I thought one of those soldiers could have killed me at any point like which is why and I think that a lot of kids felt felt like that as well which is like in my head I was thinking I, I, I kind of started off I was thinking how come it was that we didn't like give it to the soldiers every single time that we seen them like how we did throw things at them but not every single time. And I was thinking in my head and as, as I was talking to myself as an adult, talking to my kid version, I was like, it's because you were 10 and he had a massive gun. And like the yes. things that were going through in my head were like the, all of the kids who were killed by British soldiers mm-hmm. in Belfast and Bloody mm-hmm. Sunday and the Bally Murphy massacre and things like that. It's mad really thinking about it, but um, I, I suppose in a way that that is something that does kind of like, breed that sense of maybe I don't know what why you phrased it in a nice way there but that kind of thing that cancer survivors have in a way like a resonance yeah 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 and I'd like to say first of all just to respond I'm so sorry to hear about your mother and I, I know it's such a cliche but not having met her but you're you're a credit to her you know you're a beautiful human being and I'm sure you carry yeah just a lot of her in you and as yeah as a as a mother myself to my little boy that yeah I just I hope that you're surrounded and and I know you're surrounded by good community and and good people but yeah I can imagine how deeply just painful that is to lose lose mama um so sending you sending you lots of love (laughs) um particularly on this almost international women's day um and I'd also say I yeah listening I I can imagine you doing that process with your psychotherapist with your therapist um and I think there so needs to be room and I think of this oftentimes particularly when I see Palestinian kids Palestinian boys particularly like in in the street but just yeah, that that like that aching vulnerability of them, as well as like you know that that tough little you know sort of veneer of courage, but but they just feel so vulnerable, you know, and they are so vulnerable, you know, bodily when you look at that weaponry and you look at what they hold, you know, those those clenched stones in their fists or whatever else they can get their hands on. And I'm remembering as as you were talking about that, also years ago, um, 
there used to be a, a delegation of dubke dancers who would come with tour around different parts of Europe. And I remember they they were hosted in different communities all over. And when they got to Derry, um, they did a like a, a combined like youth with a with a youth project there, um, like a mural. And they visited um, uh, the the museum and and they were taken around on a tour. And I remember it was the first time because I was interpreting just as a an extra interpreter for them. A lot of times in Palestine, when international activists would come over or delegations or, you know, peacekeeping, the peace brigades, you know, sort of international, et cetera, groups would come over um, to the camp that I was living in. I translate from Arabic to English for them. Right. So people, kids, sometimes youth organizers, activists, community, you know, sort of organizers, et cetera, in the camp would walk the delegation in Palestine around the camp. And, and I'd be one of the people interpreting, you know, to the group. And when the group, so I was used to translating from Arabic to English, the word sniper, martyr, political prisoner, curfew, you know, mourning, grief, hospitals, snipers, like all of these, these words, right? When the kids came, I mean, you know what I'm going to say, but when the kids came to Derry, I found myself interpreting the other way around. I was interpreting those those words from English to Arabic as as their hosts, our hosts in Derry use the same word, sniper, political prisoner. Yeah, all, all of that. Yeah, just the vocabulary of war and occupation. So when I interpreted that for the kids and after they did this mural, you know, they they heard about, they, they met with ex-prisoners, etc. They said that they had never felt anywhere more at home in, in all of their, you know, their touring across Europe as, as Derry, as the bogside. So I think... It's really important, you know, to recognize in a way, and it's not that I think that there can't be solidarity beyond lived experience, right? That people can't conceptually get it, you know, get some of the nuances of it. But I think there's a particular register when folks like you and others, you know, who have had similar lived experience, even though different, um, go to Palestine because it's getting it, but it's also getting it beyond you know, just this abstract political commitment to what does it feel like to be a 10-year-old boy with a soldier in front of you with a big gun that you know can kill you? What does that mean? And I don't think, you know, people, I don't think activists, you know, witnesses, accompaniers, observers, humanitarians, whatever, who haven't had that lived experience, I'm not sure if they can get it to the same degree. And in the same way that you probably have that attunement, you know, to that suffering, I'd be pretty sure that folks in Palestine feel seen and heard by you and others who have had that experience, maybe in a way that is harder to be seen and authentically heard, maybe by by folks, you know, from other geographies. Um, and humor. And and I think we've gotten like all serious now in and that that's me, sorry. But but <laughs> I, I I love your infectious humor that I witnessed in the gym. Um and I think there's also a really like cynical, life-saving oftentimes, you know, the sense of insanity humor um that that comes, you know, that I've certainly seen, uh, particularly, you know, amongst friends in Belfast and Derry and elsewhere. And definitely seen also in Janine and Nablus and Bethlehem and other contexts too, right? People people find coping mechanisms, but also I think just a really brilliant, cynical, wry, dry humor. Um, yeah, that, that that can be like really morbid sometimes, you know, in the yeah. sense of, yeah. But also probably, you know, has a healthy level of self-deprecation is the wrong word, but, you know, I, I don't think people take themselves too seriously in either cultural context. And that is good because it minimizes maybe that eco tendency that sometimes exists within activism and activists. But, but yeah. Just one thing that just sprung to mind there that might, I think it like maybe add to what I was saying about Belfaster. It's maybe in contrast to what I was saying before a little bit in that mm. 
I'm also conscious of not always countering things in Palestine with, oh, well, that's, that yeah. happened in yeah. Belfast as well. Oh, or this is, uh, and not, yeah. and Which you'd never. I, yeah. I suppose it's, it's a way, it's the same thing when of me not like overstepping the mark in terms of representing the sure. place that I came from when I'm talking to other people. Yeah. And yeah. also in a way, it sometimes I'm conscious of not like sucking up the space that someone has over there when they're talking with yeah. just countering oh yeah like well there's a wall in Belfast as well and oh, like you know, totally. you know what I mean it's something like which shows your integrity like, yeah but um, but you know in the sense of being conscious of that space but it's maybe you know it's having that balance of not not in a way occupying space you know with one lived experience of occupation but also you know recognizing that there's sometimes a learning and a I think sometimes to be honest there's not a relief nobody nobody wants to see somebody else suffer but sometimes you know when there's an understanding that that there have been lived contexts you know in which people who have faced you know oppression and it's not to say, you know, obviously that that there aren't iterations and continuations of that. But I, I think for, you know, somebody, you know, your age or younger or older in a camp context to be able to think, okay, wow, this experience that they're living through right now does not have to define everything about their life, right? That they can create spaces that in some ways are defined by the occupation, but in some ways have nothing to do with the occupation, right? That, and there's a lot of, Palestinian, you know, artists who speak to that. I remember reading this this one poet once who I'm going to paraphrase them, but they basically said that they're they're looking so forward to the day of like you know liberation or you know the end of the occupation, so they can you know cut the shackles of that chain that is Palestine. You know, in a way, you know that 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 defines everything. You know, that defines art, that defines music, that defines you know, and because it, it all exists in a way a lot of it exists in a way in contrary, you know, to what defines so much of people's daily lived experience. And I think there's a whole emergent generation, you know, of Palestinian artists and activists and thinkers and writers and, you know, who are really, you know, in a way problematizing sometimes, you know, really, you know, nationalist discourses that in that context then define everything and 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 also critiquing, you know, strategies and ways of political factions that have been irrepresentative of, you know, a much more pluralistic, diverse discourse and practice that is coming out from an emergent generation of young Palestinian activists. And that is done in conversation and co-learning with, I think, the Palestinian diaspora, you know, so young Palestinian, Palestinian Americans, Palestinian Chilenos, you know, Palestinian um, Ghanaians, you know, Palestinians, you know, where they've sort of, you know, just been <laughs> sort of either exiled or migrated, you know, depending on the generation, but oftentimes exiled, mostly exiled across the world. And that, that they're restoring what it means to be Palestinian, um, almost in a way like they're building that collective voice that goes beyond borders, goes beyond boundaries into a huge diaspora community across the world, whom have every right to be so much part, you know, of, of that organizing, of that discourse, of that voice, of that resistance. Um, and they're doing amazing things. And I think their alliances, you know, and this is, sorry, this is a long-winded way of coming back to your point, but vis-a-vis, -vis, I think there's such a power in, in that, that sharing of experience, you know, so I'm thinking of Palestinian Americans, you know, and their work for years, you know, with Black Lives Matter, you know, and also a lot of 
even more grassroots, you know, sort of groups, you know, around racial justice in the states, you know, around undocumented communities, um, you know, around, you know, intersectional feminist groups around, you know, like they, they've been doing that hard graft, that work, you know, of explaining what Palestine is to organizers and activists in that context of bringing over delegations of communities, BIPOC, you know, and communities of color organizers to Palestine, you know, to witness the commonality. So, so I suppose what I'm saying is I, I definitely, I hear that discomfort in terms of like making sure that one's lived experience doesn't, you know, take up undue space. But I think there's also a comfort in that sharing, you know, of, of lived experience, because then people can see that that dissent and survival and joyous creative community resistance has existed in a multiplicity of struggles, you know, and always will. You know, people people will oftentimes, you know, survive horrific loss and suffering and within it maintain, you know, deep compassion, deep community, deep humanity. And yeah, just intercommunity solidarity as well. I think that what's really nice about the chat that we're having now is that that it is kind of centered around those things that you mentioned about art and about seeing other aspects of life and tuning into the other aspects of life that it's kind of like human to human connection, like common bonds that we have, because it can be difficult to get that perspective from like the news kind of orientated media especially when you talk about something like Palestine or the refugee crisis it's just the bad stuff and the yeah. kind of really grim stories which obviously need to be told as well yeah I suppose like the, the kind of personal nature of going over there with groups or with friends and building those connections is, is a nice way of being able to see the other side and, sh- and share that which is kind of like I guess a lot of what you've been talking about for the last hour or so and so impactful as well you know in the sense that you know it brings because I, I think people have almost you know that that stories of suffering you know from Palestine have been happening for so long you know so many decades I think that some people maybe who aren't emotionally involved in that as a particular struggle might tune out and I think it's finding you know those creative you know the, those those other stories you know that are stories of just more complexity you know more yeah just 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 more life in a way you know that that people don't be don't become defined by death don't be Become defined by their loss, but that they become defined by other things too, you know, to people who are learning about them is, is really, really important. And I think it also, you know, as you know, like it's the duality, you know, of life and death. It's the duality of trauma and survival and, you know, grief and joy. And that duality exists every day, you know, and I know you've seen this, you know, walking through the streets of a camp, you know, and there's a funeral and there's a wedding, you know, within like, you know, three doors of each other, or, you know, there's, there's a hip hop event, you know, and then there's maybe more socially conservative, you know, religious event or, and I think that's a really important thing, you know, that for too long, Palestinian youth specifically have become defined by political factions, right? Defined by, you know, the latest internal, you know, sort of oppression of some Sometimes the Palestinian Authority vis-a-vis imprisonment of political dissidents or, you know, the latest oftentimes really regressive rights denying actions that are enacted by Hamas in, in Gaza, you know, vis-a-vis women folks who are secular, you know, LGBTQI folks, etc. And then that is not to buy into, I think, Islamophobic discourses, you know, that criminalize, but it is to say that 
particularly Palestinian youth, oftentimes want neither, <laughs> like of, you know, what is a very dated, oftentimes very freedom narrowing in a context that is already so narrow vis-a-vis -vis freedom in terms of the occupation, but space, you know, they want space to express, the space to dissent, the space to be their complex beings and not always be, you know, locked into this sort of rhetorical sparring of, of political factions that a lot of people feel no longer represent them, you know, either in the West Bank or in Gaza. Mm -hmm. um, so it's how to, in a way, I think a lot of Palestinians that I know, you know, how to recognize that even within those political factions, you know, that people have lost, you know, that people have grieved, you know, that that there has been a lot of suffering, but also to say that their voices, their perspectives, particularly this emergent generation in conversation with the diaspora need to be not only listened to, but I think led by. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent. But I would say just I can't wait to see the film. I, I really look forward to, you know, seeing how you represent things when you get back. But what I know of you and, you know, the glimpse that I've gotten of your friends, I think that will be done, you know, with enormous integrity and and how great that people can see something positive, you know, and life affirming and joyous. Yeah. And youth led also like coming out of a context that oftentimes is not defined by that in terms of public perception or image. So I think whatever you do, it will be great. Also remember, <laughs> sit down, sit down with your, with your, with your people, with your tribe and process. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it provides a freedom space, I think, for people to to do that in other aspects of their life too. And like what you were saying there really kind of articulates much better than we were doing our best to articulate about the film and how, how we're going to represent it. Like we started off the chat about the film being like, are we, are we just going to go down with the camera and just show the level of poverty and oppression that people are suffering and just leave it at that? Because that's not, that's not going to do the whole thing justice or it's not going to represent the people who are our friends over there. Uh, totally. But you'll 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 do it all, and you know I, if you have a camera with you, you know there's you're gonna get. I, I I'm just thinking of all of yeah, just the casual, the humor, the quirkiness, the characters. You know, camps are, I, I think, some of the most interesting places. You know, in the sense of like the the geography of it is you have you know you have so many people living in like such a small area, and it just creates this really interesting interesting i think version of community you know what does it mean to like literally you know live on top of your neighbors you know walk past them you know witness their struggles and their triumphs and their sort of every day i think it will be great i can't wait to see it and i i just wanted to also give deep respect you know and i know that you're humble so you probably find it hard to internalize but i of all the places that we went on the, the zapatista tour i really just took such um hope from the space that you've created in the gym and it was a real pleasure to be around and yeah and i could definitely i could picture my my 10 year old tyke in there in the future <laughs> but i could also picture you know just a lot of others and and it in a way if if i have any i think sort of regret you know because you were asking me that in the sense of like processing things etc is that i haven't yet had the time i think in a way to to create something and i'm not even thinking of a physical space but in a way you know because so much of some of this work is like reacting you know to sort of the latest war the latest you know etc um but to just just in a way sort of do what the zapatistas have have been you know really urging us all i think for many years which is to sort of bring chiapas home and i think you have brought you know a version of chiapas and lots of other lots of other influences home and created home within that for people so that's a real gift you know to to the folks who access that space and to you you know as well what a what a joy yeah to be around your people you know and thanks very much <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I, I think maybe to bring it back around and and co- and like from all the stuff that we were talking about there, that was very kind, by the way. To bring it back around and like for me anyway, the long-term involvement in in, in things like Palestine and what, maybe the same for other people who like yourself who've been you've been involved in, in loads of different struggles in different contexts. It really at the end of the day is only sustained by friendship with the people that yeah. I end up meeting it. And I, I don't think that I could sustain yeah. a long-term effort if it was just based on what I was seeing on the news. Yeah, definitely. It's the quality of human relationship. Definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, it it's, it can never be abstract, you know, when it's embodied in the bodies, the spirits, the lives of people, you know, that that we love, that, you know, that that become part of, of whom we are. No, I, I feel similarly. I mean, I think one can always have, you know, a political commitment, you know, to principles, political commitment, you know, to struggles of people, you know, seeking justice. But it, yeah, it's so much deeper, you know, once the relational piece is really strong, so much deeper. And I actually have a lot of admiration for, you know, organizers and solidarity folks that I know here who have m- never been in a way to maybe the geographies that they're active around, that they can maintain that energy and, you know, that that commitment. Because similarly, probably to you, for me as well, you know, when I think about Palestine, it's not abstract, it's people, it's friends, it's communities, and similar to other geographies and other other struggles. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a case that you don't have to meet someone in person to feel that connection oh, with them either at yeah. the same time, you know, for people who haven't been able to, to totally. go to the places that they're, they're, that they're struggling for. But I think it's really, I, I, I really admire it that folks can, you know, because it's one thing, I think, to show up for a demonstration or, you know, when something is going on. But I think of organizers, you know, I'm thinking like around East Timor, you know, years ago or around like multiple other struggles who for decades, you know, just kept on keeping on, you know, Latin American solidarity folks, you know, and and also, you know, in what, what I've really observed in particularly in the Latin American context is it was so different perhaps to places like Palestine that are overly comparatively mediatized in the sense that like there were so many unknown folks intergenerationally who sort of did the work of accompaniment there, whom, you know, whose names, whose stories like, well, we don't know, but, but yeah, there, there's actually, an, and they just spring to mind because I was just thinking in a way of like honoring folks who you know, don't tip your, don't fit your typical profile when people think of sort of solidarity activists or solidarity organizers, but, but some of the most amazingly, yeah, just consistent, strong, I, I think feminist accompaniers that I, I I met in Ireland are actually this group of, of nuns in their seventies and eighties. Uh, they live in a little community in Cabra and they all in a much younger life and maybe going to the nunhood in they've never articulated this. this is probably my projection but i think in some ways it was probably a way of getting out of quite reductive gender roles you know vis-a-vis that the only choice you know was sort of marriage and and children but the, but they all lived and worked in latin america you know during the contras you know during genocides you know they worked with undocumented communities you know on the us mexican border etc and they if they weren't if they had more mobility some of them are now in wheelchairs they'd they'd be back you know and and i go and visit them and speak to them sometimes about the camps or pre-covid and they'd oftentimes say if we could just if we could just get there you know we'd be there and but i just think in the sense of there were liberation theology you know in terms of sentiment you know non-doctrinal 
critical of, of power, you know, in, in terms of its abuse, you know, and, and of abuse itself within the church. So there was definitely, you know, a, I think a, a carrying of the shame around that, but also a carrying of just like really beautiful basic tenets of the works of mercy and of witness um, as well. They're, they're beautiful, beautiful folks. And just, yeah, I think their spirituality was was really accountable and there was a real purity, you know, in terms of just bringing it down to its basics, which is tending to the wounded, visiting, you know, the imprisoned, um, you know, providing food for, you know, hungry and homeless or houseless, you know, folks, etc. So, but to go back to the thing of friendship, I, I really think that both within the communities that we work with and within ourselves, you know, I, I love the fact that you're going over with a crew of your friends, right? That, that shared experience, that shared space of processing as well is so important and it's such a gift maybe more so than in other times maybe covid has been a really good reminder of just how valuable our friendships are to us and you know how lonely life would be without being able to access the, the people that become part of our family um, as well that's probably a nice way to finish it up even we could keep talking for ages is there anything in particular anywhere in particular you would like people to like check out or follow up on if they've been listening to this maybe uh it's it's sort of a work in formation so it's not up there yet but we're in the process of sort of forming a network called resourcing responders just if any of the trauma related stuff sort of sparked with people but that will be down the road so uh yeah and then i'd say yeah probably maybe work around safe passage um there's a group of us who are sort of working with a group who is actually about to change its name but which is called refugee rescue and that works um in the central mediterranean in terms of responding to the tens of thousands of women men and children who are dying preventable deaths while crossing from libya to europe um and the aegean and and we're in the process of of trying to work towards an irish flagged ship uh, that would respond in a search and rescue um and human rights monitor capacity. Um, so folks keep an eye on that. But I'd say more than anything, more than, you know, because I think a lot of folks who probably listen to your show are already, you know, plugged into Solidarity Networks. Um, but I'd say more than anything, just to really internalize maybe even a little bit of what we touched upon today, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, collective and self-care being really just, I think, an act of, you know, revolutionary love and just to to tend to oneself as well as you know to the communities that we're trying to support and and yeah and just to give oneself permission to to embrace joy as much as possible because yeah there's a lot of it to be found in life as well very nice i, I would add into that as well that i watched your ted talk the other day and oh no <laughs> it's really <laughs> the, lovely oh the most unprepared for ted talk i didn't show up for any of the rehearsals and then on the bus on the way there i was like oh no i think i better prepare something so it was totally ad-libbed oftentimes they're over scripted but yeah it probably showed anyways but thank you you, it was, you nailed it yeah. <laughs> and um is there anywhere in particular that people can go to watch the the films that you've that you've put together Ah, so yeah, perhaps they're all they're all up on uh, Vimeo. Um, I don't really have a website. I but I suppose if they Google my name plus Vimeo plus either Refuge, The Border, uh, Freedom, there's a whole bunch of of different ones. And soon there's going to be one. We, we've been filming a little film vignette with Tyke, with my little guy, which is all about he he's he's sort of a seal. He goes cold water swimming, you know, throughout the winter, and he loves forests and crafting and carpentry and lots of different things. There's a bit of post punk in there as well him and his friend air guitaring and and also refuge seeking journeys so him telling the stories of a couple of friends of ours ismail from darfur and sarah 
from Damascus, from Syria. But so, yeah, that will eventually be up there as well. But it, it's, it's been a real joy to make because in a way, given, I think, some of the density and the intensity and, and pain, you know, of, of some of the stories and, and work that I, I work amongst and with and communities, it's just been really fun. So, but yeah, that, that'll be up there eventually as well. Class, mm. Well, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed the chat. Total pleasure, total, total pleasure, and and safe journeys. Yeah, and let's touch base when you get back as well. I'll, I'll follow follow the work. Thanks, Megan. <laughs>